Om Sam Saraswati Namaha Namaste. And this evening we're going to begin our discussion of all the unanswered questions that everybody has since day one of our class. So uh, we, with that understanding, then we'll start the next class. And the next class is going to be about the Kashyap Sutras. And that's really a fun class. Because Kashyap Muni became illuminated like the sun. So they called him a living sun. Uh, S-U-N. Uh, not an S-O-N. So he was like the sun. And to all of us in our tradition, the sun is the light of wisdom and the warmth of devotion combined. It's sort of like what we call the distinction between buddhi and medha. Buddhi is, is intellect, and medha is the intellect of love. You know, when you love something, you know more about it, more intimately, you feel it. And you, it feels so right and so good, and you get this hunger to learn more. And it's different between buddhi, where you just sort of cram facts into your cranium and try to spew them out on the next examination so that you can pass the test. Uh, so medas, as an application for the buddhi, and the application is, because of my love, I want to bring all within my sphere of influence, all into a greater harmony. I want to use that knowledge to create greater harmony to everyone who I have the potential to influence because I love them. That's my motivation. Just one pure motivation, to create a greater harmony for everyone I love. Where buddhi, you're just amassing facts and storing data on chips that you may use or may not. But it, it's not all in RAM. A lot of it goes <laughs> onto your ROM, and it goes into the, your storage capacity so you can recall it when you need it. That's enough about some, about Kashyap Sutras. Uh, let's talk about uh, things that are really interesting to people. Uh, do you have any questions? From Nanda. Oh, Namaste, Nanda, Mom. <laughs> All becomes blissful. How can the experience that we would usually judge as painful become blissful? Oh, it's just a way of looking at things, Nanda. There are certain things in our spiritual discipline we call tapasya. Some of it is actually physically uncomfortable. You may feel your feet burning, or you may feel your back aching, or your hips wanting to move, or you may feel a pain in that certain part of your posterior that you just want to get up and squirm a little bit. And the more you can hold yourself still in your body, the more you deeply you go in your mind until you forget about the pain at all. So we transform the pain, we transform the concept into something that's really blissful and really empowering. Do you know, Nanda, there, if you just remember that nobody ever died from a cramp in their foot, and we could always think that, what a small price 
to pay for all the stupid things I've done in my life is to sit here with this pain. This is my sacrifice to show how much I love, to show how much I desire that purity, that clarity, the, the, that relationship with the most important person in your life. The one who inspires the greatest clarity, the greatest purity, the greatest sense of commitment with a big C, where I actually made that transition into being the person I want to become the most. I am fulfilling my sankalp. Sun means all, and kalpa means idea, and all of my idea is focused right here upon my objective, my goal. The person who's most important to me in my life. Uh, can you see that out there? I'm sure you can. Uh, you can see it here too. So if you have that understanding and you have that relationship and you have that bhavana, that feeling, that intensity of reality that becomes your reality. And then it's not just a hypothesis. It's not just an idea, it's your reality, it's your bhavna, it's your intensely real experience. So, Nanda, all we have to do is change our mind and stop looking at the negative aspect and just look at the positive part of it and it, we can transmute that sense of pain into the greatest delight the greatest source of sacrifice, the greatest opportunity to demonstrate my sincerity. I think that will be the objective. A second question from Nanda. What does it mean to see the highest divinity in all circumstances? <clears throat> well, we define dharma as the ideal of perfection, the highest ideal of perfection. Now, in every circumstance, we're seeking the highest ideal. What could be the best outcome from this situation? What can we gain for the most, the maximum gain for the most amount of people to bring them all into our harmony, to bring them all in, to empower them all with the wealth that we choose to share? How do we define that? And that is seeking the divinity in the circumstance. If we seek the divinity in the circumstance, we seek to empower everyone we can empower with the most amount of power that we can give them. That's Shakti. That's the Shakti we want to share to empower people to pursue their goals and objectives in accordance with the understanding of the highest ideal of perfection. I want to inspire my kids, I want to inspire my disciples, I want to inspire the world, as many people as want to listen, what is my concept of the highest ideal of perfection? That would be my dharma, and in doing my dharma, I'm seeing God, I'm seeing the supreme divinity in every circumstance I approach. I see that God in everybody who comes to our class, who everyone in, who participates in our discussion, to Sham and Ambika, and to all the friends and family from all around the world. You, you, we just try to deliver our love, even through a webcam. 
We try to give you as much knowledge and inspiration as we possibly can, just to empower you. Not That's the only return we want on the energy that we're investing, is to watch you grow. Now that's our dharma. That's how we define our dharma, as applied to the circumstances of our lives. Each one of you is empowered to define it your own way. And we don't want to take away your power. We want you to define it your own way. But if you can see things a little bit from our point of view, <laughs> we'll be even more happy. I'm not going to disempower you. I want to empower you to make those decisions yourself. But if you take a look at things from our point of view, uh, we have the vantage of a perspective of many more years than many of you have. And from that experience, we have a little bit more understanding of the application of knowledge to circumstance. And when we effectively apply knowledge to circumstance and evolve a greater harmony, we are exercising wisdom. And that's the goal. To use your knowledge, applied knowledge, applying them to the situations that you face in life, applying to the circumstances of life, in such a way as it creates a greater harmony and a greater, a greater bob and a greater intensity, a greater sincerity, a greater purity, a greater clarity. You empower all that with whom you come into communication. And that empowerment, it comes about as a consequence of applying wisdom. The application of knowledge to circumstance for the outcome of harmony is wisdom. Oh, that will be how we, we see the divine in everything. Where's the wisdom in this circumstance? Where's the harmony? How can I use my knowledge and experience to apply wisdom to, great, to inspire and empower all of you to look at life from a different perspective? Oh, Therein lies the divinity, Nanda. Question for, from us, Saranya in Walnut Creek. Yes, Namaste, Saranya. Verse 20, um, abandon or renounce all thoughts of your status in life, the nobility of your birth, your own fame and increase in this world, and deeply intuit the attitude of the guru and no other. How does one deeply intuit the attitude of the guru? Bhavahit is the term we use in Sanskrit. Your bhavana, your attitude, your deeply intuitive awareness, your consciousness is absorbed by the purity, the clarity, the illumination, the wisdom of the circumstance, the form of the guru is your meditation, the word of the guru is your mantra, the puja from the guru is learned from her feet, and liberation from all the extraneous objects and relationships that are calling and pulling on us is called liberation. Remember we have three debts of karma. We owe a debt of karma to the gods and goddesses which we discharge by making a contribution to this world. 
We owe a debt of karma to the ancestors, which we discharge by taking care of the elderly the way we will want to be cared for when we're old and it's not too far away. And by nurturing the young people the way we want this world to become. <clears throat> Listen up, guys. And we owe a third debt of karma to the gurus. And we discharge that debt by living in accordance with the wisdom that they teach. Now, when we paid off all our debts, we're liberated from the debts of karma. That means take the discount. Don't put it on the credit card. If you put it on the credit card, you're going to have to pay interest. You're going to have to pay a late fee. You're going to have to pay uh, attorney's fees. You're going to have to pay collection fees. You're going to have, it costs you to put it on the credit card. Karmically and dharmically. It's true in the material world. It's true in the spiritual world. Live on a cash basis. Live according to your means and make those means grow. Don't borrow karma. Pay off your debts. So now we want to make a contribution to this world. We want to empower each other to make a greater contribution to this world so this world becomes better because of my having participated in it. I owe that. I owe that to the world as soon as I took birth. I came into this manifested existence owing the fact that I, I'm going to make a contribution. I've got to do something for somebody else. I've got to save the whale or hug a tree or, or write a book or teach a class. Or I'm going to do something for other people to empower them. I'm going to take care of my family. I'm going to take care of the elderly. I'm going to help old ladies walk across the street because believe me, I know what it's like not to be able to do it on my own. And I want to teach the young people the way this world should become. What kind of world do we want to live in? Don't we want to live in a world where everyone naturally feels empowered to define their dharma? They just, there are no rules. The rules are that you know what's right and wrong. Why do we need rules? To say, you can't do that. Don't walk when the light is red. I need a policeman to say, I'm going to fine you if you do. Everybody, one day, and I was in Zurich, of all the places, and I got on a tram. And I got on the tram, and I said to the, somebody sitting next to me on the tram, I said, uh, where do you buy a ticket? And they said, oh, there's a little box on the side of the road where you buy the ticket before you get on the tram. I said, well, doesn't the ticket collector come by? Can I buy it from the ticket collector? And the person said to me, there are no ticket collectors. I said, well, why would people buy a ticket if there are no ticket collectors? And I got the reply, how are we going to run the tram if nobody buys a ticket? I mean, it costs something to run the tram. Everybody buys a ticket. Well, I was so embarrassed. Uh, I was looking for someone to give my money to because I knew, oh, wow, what a wonderful way of life. What a wonderful concept. Everybody was naturally in, in, 
empowered to follow the Dharma. They all knew what was right and what was wrong. They just got, they just bought their ticket and got on the tram. They didn't wait for somebody to say, you better buy the ticket or I'm going to fine you and take you to jail and I'm going to... That was really surprised. I mean, it blew my mind. It was a, really what a sense of civic duty. What a sense of civic duty. It was just a, a, a privilege for me to participate in a society with that sense of civic responsibility. That every citizen is responsible for keeping things going and no one would take undue advantage. I bow to your countrymen for coming up with such a unique and novel concept. You think it's too long in death? I don't know. <laughs> I, I haven't been on a tram in Zurich in so long. You can't tell. Is that system still in, 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 in working today? Yeah. It still works that way for now. <laughs> Namaste. Thank you for your example to the world. It's an example that I carry with me uh, 30, 40 years, and I still remember the experience because it was so unique. Everywhere else I went, they, they came and said, all right, where's your ticket? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> uh, so in the same way we want to empower all of our people with the sense of responsibility with the sense where we, we don't need rules that have to be enforced. We don't need prisons to keep people in jail because they broke the rules. We need to spend them the time and the energy and inspiring and educating on what kind of society we could live in if, if everyone took personal responsibility. And if we could communicate that message, we would save so much more than paying the policeman to tell us what not to do. <laughs> Thou shalt not. <laughs> or else. <laughs> so if we want to take care of the elderly the way we want to be cared for when we're old. We want to nourish the young people the way we want this world to become. And I am so proud of Sridhar. He comes and he listens intently and I'm sure that you're taking all of this understanding with you into your world and sharing with your friends. I hope all the young people that are listening all around the world will have that understanding and be empowered to take this understanding and spread it around your friends so that we could spend less on enforcement and more on education. And that would be our goal and discharging the debt of karma that we owe to the Pitris, to our ancestors. You know, we're in a very good place with very good people, doing very good things in a very nice way. And all the karma that our families performed to prepare us to come to this place at this moment, in this circumstance, in this situation, with this association, that was all good karma. Even if it was tough love and we didn't like it at the time, even if they made mistakes, everything they did empowered us to be here now in this situation. So don't we want to 
turn around to our parents and our grandparents and all the generations, seven generations previous, seven generations to come and say, hey, thanks a lot. <laughs> you did something right. Look where I am. We're hanging out with Shreema in the Devi Mandir. Gossiping with Swami. We're doing good things with good people in good places and the, we are becoming more empowered to do even more. Thank you. Daniva, Shukriya. Whatever I can say to, to, to let you know the sincerity of my sense of privilege to be able to have such an association that helps me to pay off the debt of karma to the Petris, to all the ancestors, and now, as for the gurus, uh, we want to say, oh, you got one too? <laughs> I know that she's your favorite. The favorite example. G-U-R-U. G-U-R-U. And that's where she is. She is the guru. G-U-R-U. We want to live in accordance with the teachings, with the example, with the bhavana, with the feeling, with the inspiration, with the understanding. We want to cook like she cooks and we want to eat like she eats. She never finishes all the food on her plate. She said, if I ate everything, what will everybody else eat? Mom, we've all got a plate of our own. She said, well, look out the window. How many peacocks are there? Count the deer in the forest. <laughs> what would they eat? I cook for everyone. I don't just cook for you. I cook for Shiva and Shiva's family. If we follow the example of our guru, if we live according to the bhavana, the understand the intensity of that reality, that, that submersion in the center, where she is totally consumed by the center and she looks at us from the inside out, instead of the way we are accustomed to looking from the outside in, then we get to live in that harmony, defining dharma in every moment of life. Everything we do, we've got criteria by which to discriminate. Is this in accordance with my ultimate goal? Is my momentary selfishness in the best interest of my accomplishing my chief objective? I have this goal of uniting with God. If I get a little extra for myself, <laughs> if that selfish interest is fulfilled, will that bring me closer to my long-range goal? Or am I being short-sighted? And should I bend over backwards to compromise so I can make it work for everyone? I don't want to be right. I want to have peace. And I, that peace is going to empower me to achieve my ultimate goal. Oh, let me look at my circumstances of life. Where can I compromise and give up a little more of my selfish attachment 
because ultimately my goal is to give up all my selfish attachment. That's the only way I can become one with God and one with Dharma. I can't take all of my attachments into that relationship. It just won't fit. In unity, there's only one. And there's no room for all this attachment. So now, what is the best course of action for me to achieve my ultimate goal and not just my short-term selfish interest? Where can I compromise? Where can I give up a little bit more? And can that inspire compromise from all those with whom I'm negotiating? And believe me, we're all negotiating in every relationship. I have to negotiate for space at the kitchen sink. I mean, there's so many dishwashers in Ma's kitchen that they won't let me even wash my cup. <laughs> I have to stand in line to get to the running water. Now, there's a little negotiation. Sometimes I use my backside, and sometimes I use my hip, and sometimes I use an elbow, but little by little I, use, I merge into the flow and get a place at the sink so I can wash my cup myself. I don't want to leave it for everybody else all the time. I mean, that wouldn't be appropriate. I would become lazy and begin to expect people are going to clean up around me, and that's not fair. Not fair to anyone. So I've got to negotiate in order to get a space at the sink. And I thought putting two sinks in our kitchen would be the solution. It's not enough. <laughs> Sorry. Uh, one is for puja utensils and the other is for eating utensils. And I won't wash the eating utensils in the puja utensil sink. But we're all negotiating all the time in every relationship. Now, if we're seeking the Dharma, we're seeking the center, we're seeking how do we find the optimum balance where I can give up a little more and empower my friends to get a little more so they feel secure and empowered to give up something for me. And that'll be a good negotiation. Win-win negotiating, we call it. Everybody's a winner. I didn't lose. I can let you wash my cup this time, but I get to do it next time. So those are our three debts of karma, and as long as we're oh, we're debtors. We're, we owe. I owe, I owe, off to work I go. I've got karma. <laughs> I, my, my chief goal has to be to get free from debt then I can choose whether I want to work or not. As long as I owe, how can I say I'm not going to work? I'm just accumulating interest. <laughs> That's not smart. That's dead money. That's gone. That's of no value to pay extra interest and collection fees and debtor's fees and all the rest that comes with it. So a prudent business 
person would say, I want to pay off my debts of karma as quickly as possible. I want to define the greatest contribution I can make to this world so I can make this world a better place and get out of debt to the gods. I want to de define how I'm going to take care of my family and all of my extended family so that I can do that in the most, most prudent way as quickly and efficiently as possible. We're sadhus, we're seeking efficiency in every action we perform. I want to find a way to educate and nourish the next generation so that these values uh, continue into the posterity that they really understand it and they grok it and they want, to, they want to live the same kind of life that we were privileged to live. I mean, to make your own home on a mountaintop, uh, disconnected from the grid, make your own electricity, make your own water substance, make your own sewer system, make your own toilets, make your, uh, everything worked on its own. Uh, do you remember with that old trailer in the, in the, in the parking lot? That was where we started. That's where we started. We made it. All of this came out of that little trailer. Remember the old days there were 16, 17, 20 people in, in that little trailer. Mom was cooking for everybody. And we were hanging off the luggage rack and sitting in the, in, in, on the floor and sitting all over each other. And we pulled it around the, the country for years. Rosie was here when we were leaving in tents. Boy, was it intense. <laughs> we were all intense. <laughs> we were real pioneers then. So we want to empower the next generation to have these values and have this insight, have this energy, and have to be empowered to create their own futures just as we were empowered to do so. We want you to have that inspiration. We want you to have the information and to know that you can do it too. I better stop here. We have a question from Ramya. Namaste, Rami, Mommy. Thank you so much for my fried chilies and urdal. <laughs> can you please tell us how to do the meditation on Pindam, Param, and Rupam? Can yes. we do Buddha Shuddhi independent of Puja? Yes. And yes, and yes, yes we can. Rami, mommy, first of all, uh, Pinda and Pada. And uh, what was it? Pindu, Pinda. Well, it's Pinda, Pada, and Rupa. Pinda, Pada, and Rupa. Verse 121 is when she Okay. Pinda is the Kundalini Shakta. And that's the energy that we're bringing up from the Muladhara to Sahasra. Padam are the syllables hamsa. When Siva and Shakti unite, Shiva is hum. Hum hum rudra devaya nama. Sa is Shakti. So when hamsa, when she flies from the Muladhara to the Sahasra, now you have the two of them together. They are uh, the two the two syllables. Hamsa. So hum. I am he, or she is me, or we are we. And Rupam means that she's a Kalpana Atit. She is everywhere. She is in every Rup. She is in every form. 
She is everywhere you see. If you can have the darshan of Shiva and Shakti in union and communion where you cannot distinguish between the two of them, then you see her everywhere. And if you see that root, if you see that form, then you treat every object of, re of creation with the same respect as you would treat your guru. Remember, Srimad tells the story of how she threw the broom in the corner and then she heard a voice saying, wait, that broom is the tool with which you clean up all the messes. And she went and picked up the broom and she bowed down to the broom and she said, thank you, broom, for being such an important part of my life. And she went and she placed it delicately in the corner. In the same way we find we want to pay respect to everything that we touch, everything that we see. It's all worthy of our respect. If we're going to have a relationship with it, better be a relationship of respect because the alternative is not very nice. If I disrespect it, it won't work for me. And so I want it to work for me. I'm empowering myself by paying respect to the broom. Because if I throw the broom, the broom is going to get funky really quickly and he'll say, I'm on strike. <laughs> Buy a new broom. <laughs> and then you find, well, he's not that bad. I'll just put him in the back of the closet. I'll get a new broom. <laughs> and then pretty soon you got a closet full of old brooms. <laughs> and if you treated them with respect and they would work for you, you'd just keep the one broom and it wouldn't be a problem. In the same way, Sadhu Land, we talk about the guys who will sit by the fire and they watch their fire die down and, and just become glowing embers and even those get cold. And then suddenly they wake up and realize, oh, the fire's getting cold and they take what we call a fuki. Uh, and you take a little pipe and you blow a and you try to re-enkindle and ignite the, the, the glow, the, make the embers glow again so you can start the fire again. You let the fire die down and then you blow and work and so hard, try to get it up again. Whereas there are other sadhus who are in yajna, they just keep adding the wood. And the fire keeps blazing, it stays at the same height. The yajna is the union between the fire and the agya chakra and the fire outside. And now I have an objective measurement of how bright is my light. And if you keep adding the wood, it just keeps glowing and radiating its light. It's a whole different story than just sitting there and letting the fire die down and then working so hard to build it back up again. So we're asking all of you, all of our sadhus, we carry a, a, a copper or brass water pot. If you shine it every day, chuck, chuck, it always shines. Huh? But if you miss a day or two, it just tarnishes immediately. <laughs> and it looks like you're a sadhu who doesn't care. Those are utensils that are not worthy of being offered to God. So if you're a sadhu, you shine your water pot every day. If you're a pujari, you shine your puja utensils every day. Don't let them tarnish. Don't let them uh, get dirty and look funky. 
it won't be appropriate to sh share with God. It's not appropriate to share, to serve God in dirty utensils. In the same way, you want to bring your energies up and let them shine and let them radiate and then let that be your service to God and to Google. There she is. <laughs> Let's see if there are other questions. We have a question from Joshua, who's currently in transit. Is he in transit or has he got home yet? No, I think he's in transit. <laughs> well, get off that plane and listen to the answer. <laughs> what is the karma of the mosquito? I usually try not to kill them, as I see them as a part of the divine. But sometimes they irritate me so much that I want to smack them. And I wonder why they exist at all. <laughs> Whoa! <laughs> uh, do you remember when Hanumani went to Lanka? And... Uh, he assumed a form as small as a mosquito, Mosak Saman Rupadarikaran. He became he, as small as a mosquito and he entered into Lanka, into the kingdom of the ego, because you can't, I mean, egos don't like big forms just walking into their kingdom. So uh, Hanuman became as small as a mosquito. And uh, so it, it, you can understand that all those small characters are representatives, emissaries of the divine. How deeply are you really thinking about God? Or are you thinking about that in your ear? So one day, Girish Ghosh and Vivekananda we're sitting in meditation on the bank of Ganga outside of Dakshineshwar Mandir. And it was evening time and Vivekananda was just totally submerged, totally engrossed in pure consciousness. He wasn't moving at all. And Girish Ghosh was going <laughs> He couldn't sit still for a moment. <laughs> he kept, <laughs> then he finally got fed up and he said, Naren, Vivekananda. Vivekananda didn't reply. Vivekananda, no answer. And then he put his hand on Vivekananda's shoulder and it was just covered completely by mosquitoes. <laughs> He didn't even notice them. <laughs> and then Girish uh, understood that Vivekananda wasn't paying attention to the mosquitoes. He was just totally engrossed in divine consciousness. He was in meditation. Uh, so Girish, of course, went to, the, to, to Ramakrishna. And he said, Thakur, you please give me the mantra so I can meditate like Vivekananda. And Ramakrishna answered, first you become Vivekananda, and then I'll give you the mantra. <laughs> so every night he used to sit there, <laughs> swatting at the mosquitoes. We have a question from Shivani. Namaste, Shivani! Why is Seva not considered a form of Archana? Oh, it is. It's a form of Archana. However, seva is different from karma yoga. Seva 
is really a privilege for me to demonstrate my love to you. And that's what seva is. It's just, I love you and I want to do this. Just, just say I love you. That's the only reason, the only motivation for my performing this action is my love for you. I'm not doing this because you're going to do that for me or you do your share and I'll do my share or this is an exchange and this is a, a it's not an agreed upon exchange. It's, I'm in love and I want you to see my love made manifest and that's Seva. Karma Yoga Anytime you use the word yoga, you go back to the definition chitta vritti nirod. Now, nirod means prohibited. Nirod means cessation. Chitta is the objects of consciousness, both buddhi and mon. Remember, we define buddhi as the objective knowledge, all the nouns and verbs of your experience. Mon is the subjective knowledge, all the adjectives and adverbs of experience. So Buddhi says this is an object. Mon says this is a nice object. Buddhi says this is Srima. And this is, Mon says this is a beautiful Srima. A radiance Rima. So the radiance and the beauty is something that's in the eyes of the holder, whereas the fact of Srima is in the object itself. Now, Chitta is all of that, both the subjective knowledge and the objective knowledge. Vritti means change or modification, any change. Any change, any vritti in the chitta is nirod, it's prohibited, it ceases. So, yoga, chitta, chitta, vritti, nirod, iti, yoga. It means yoga is the completion of union. There's perfect still consciousness. There's perfect submersion. Uh, there's no I. There's no you. There's only divine light, divine divinity made manifest. Now, Seva says, it's such a privilege to me to demonstrate my love to you by doing what I'm doing. And Karma Yoga says, I'm not there. I don't exist. Action is taking place through this vehicle. I am the car, you are the driver. Just as you drive, just so I run. There is no me, there is no thee, there is no action, there's just divine illumination. Is karma yoga. And Seva says, look mom, look what I'm doing for you. I'm gonna show you how much I love you by doing what I'm doing. See the difference? A little bit subtle, but it's a distinction nonetheless. Uh, karma Yoga says there is no me. I'm not doing this because you're doing that, and I'm not doing this in exchange for that, and I don't want a, a paycheck at the end of the month. 
That's not karma yoga. Karma yoga is, I'm not there. I have nothing, I'm not there. I did this action. So we define karma yoga as siddhanta chab, the behavior according to scriptures. Because everything else I've got to think about. The scriptures I don't have to think about. That's reality as defined by somebody else, rishis. So we define karma yoga as siddhanta chara, behavior in accordance with the scriptures, puja, pot, home, shangit, nrit, pravachan, and arpana. Seven kinds of karma yoga, siddhanta chara. That is puja is worship. Pot, recitation of scriptures. Homa, the sacred fire ceremony. Sangeet, singing for God. Narit, dancing for God. Pravachan, telling what you're doing and why you're doing it. And arpan means making offerings. Now, are you making offerings of seva? Or are you making offerings of karma yoga? The circumstances will de determine that. Your state of mind when you're offering will de define whether it's seva. It's a privilege for me to do this for you. Or whether it's karma yoga and there is no you and there is no me. <laughs> There's just this wonderful space that we're sharing right now. Yes, please. So then does the seva purify us so that the actions that we usually think of as seva can become then karma yoga? Yes, that's the advantage of doing seva. There are many advantages of it and much to be gained from it. First of all is we become purified by just saying I love you. Every time we say I love you, we reach out and say I want you to have this as a consequence of my love. That's purifying. But even more, we get to come closer and closer to the beloved. And we inculcate more and more of her attributes into our own behavior because we came close. Closer we come together, the more we become alike. Uh, I, I mean, even after all these years, I still wear orange and she wears yellow. But the closer we come together, the more we become alike. And sometimes people say, Swami Ma. <laughs> I didn't know if it was a compliment or otherwise, but I, I wasn't about to look at, at, at it very closely. Uh, Sri Ma, I can understand, but Swami Ma, they, they, all right. <laughs> There's a lot of latitude that comes with this turf, I gotta confess. Uh, uh, the, the closer we come to our beloved, the more of her attributes we assume as our own, the more we become alike. We start singing in the same way, and we start echoing each other, and we start thinking the same thoughts. Uh, someone came to the temple today and said, I might need a place to stay, and the first thing Sri Ma said was, will you stay here? And it was something I had just said before she walked in the door. You stay here. It was just, I, I, it was a given that we both had the same response to the same situation. 
And the closer we become together, the more compatible we become, the more we start thinking in alignment and attunement, at one so that there ceases to be a separation. So that's a, a greater value to be derived from performing seva than just being able to share your love. Even more, you become like your beloved. So choose your beloved wisely <laughs> because you're going to become like the people with whom you associate. Be very, very discriminating as to who you want to fall in love with because that could be you you're looking at in a few years' time. We actually have a sort of related, related question from Sadhana Shakti. Namaste, Sadhana Shakti. And this is from the Bhagavad Gita classes. From the Bhagavad Gita, Sadhana Shakti. Let's say that the people that we sing kirtan with and have satsang with do drink. Don't we have to have some discrimination? I mean, I would rather hang out with people who drink but also sing to God than people who don't sing to God. The satsang outweighs the fact that they do make the decision to drink. Whether they drink or not is really not the issue. The issue is what happens to them after they drink. Now, if they drink and they become abusive and foul-mouthed and their minds run helter-skelter and they're all over the place, then you probably don't want to be with them whether they drink or they don't drink. But if they drink and they feel like they're drinking the nectar of immortal bliss and they get so loving and so joyous and get up and dance because they're in love, and, why do you look at what goes into a person's mouth? You're affected by what comes out of their mouth. Don't worry about what they put into their system. What Worry about what comes out of their system. And if they're good friends and they're spiritual people and they're loving and they're generous and kind, what do you care what they drink? If it's water or whiskey or whatever it may be, if, if they're good people, they're good people. And you don't have to drink what they drink. Not everyone has to take the Kool-Aid. <laughs> Although in our day, it was pretty popular. <laughs> they used to come around with a big bus and pass it out. <laughs> they wrote books about it. <laughs> the electric Kool-Aid acid test. <laughs> so I wouldn't be concerned with what goes into a person's system. You will be affected by what comes out. And use that as your criteria, whether you want to have satsang with those people or not. Because if they, if they consume whatever they consume and they come out loving and joyous and kind, and that kindness empowers you, take the power. Take the shakti, the inspiration, wherever you get it. Take the satsang and enjoy it. And don't judge them because of what they put into their system. Judge them by what comes out. What kind of productivity do they have? Are they celebrating something, excellent success? Or are they running away from terrible failures? I mean, you consider what they're doing and how it will affect you. Uh, we, 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 of course, we have many experiences. Let's go on. <laughs> we had another question from Sadhana Shakti. Uh oh, 
How does Jnana Shakti and Tamogun have anything in common? They have so much in common. Uh, Jnana Shakti is the illumination of your light. And you only see the light when it shines in the darkness. Uh, when the sun is shining so brightly and you open up your flashlight, what do you see? Nothing. You see the light in the darkness. So that's why Tamguna is Jnana Shakti. It illuminates the light. It gives a context for the light to shine. And when you see the light, you, you, you've eradicated the darkness. But the, the light only shines in the darkness. You know the light because of the duality. You know the unity because of the duality. When you have become separate, you know what it means to come back together again. And that togetherness is so empowering because Shiva and Shakti revolve each, around each other mutually and exclusively. And who understands this understands what is a chakra, a center of energy. And the light shines in the dark. And when you are revolving around each other mutually and exclusively, then you create this, the, uh, an energy field which is greater than the sum of the parts. The whole is greater than the sum of the parts. The unity is greater than the two individuals producing independently. So wherever you see the darkness, you'll know that it's there only to expose the light. We call Narayani the exposer of consciousness. She gives form to the consciousness. She gives measurement to the consciousness. She embodies the consciousness. She is Narayani. She is the Shakti, the energy of all consciousness. She makes it perceivable to us in the same way as the darkness is illuminated by the light. I, if you remember the Ratri Shukta, which is in the Prayog to the Chandipat, then Ratri brings her sister Usha. Usha, are you listening? Thank you. Ratri brings her sister Usha, the dawn, and the darkness departs. And the dawn brings the sun, which is the light of wisdom. And as the wisdom comes up on the horizon, we see darkness receding again and again until it's daytime. Uh, uh, ooh is a circumstance of all creation. It, isha is the illumination, the prakash, the, the, the consciousness which illuminates the circumstance of all creation, Usha, Pranam. We have a question from Ambika. Namaste Ambika, Namaste Sham. If we need the darkness for the light to shine, how would we reconcile the darkness one might experience if they have a mental disability and have trouble seeing the light? Thank you. We can understand that all of us have prarabdha karma. We have this burden of karma of actions commenced in the past, the fruits of which are being experienced in the present. And until that past karma is not complete, we will continue to experience the effects of those actions. So each of us took birth 
with sanskaras and with basanas. We have unfulfilled desires and tendencies to manifest in a certain kind of behavior with a certain kind of personality. And we took birth in a family uh, which was prepared to, to pre provide a, an environment conducive to our nurturing in the ways that we need to become in order to fulfill that past karma. You took birth in a certain household with certain parents, with certain social economic values, with a certain discussion around the dinner table, which empowered you to become what you became. And these are our sanskaras, our tendencies, the, the ways that we have manifest previously as prarabdha karma. These fruits are coming into fruition today and into the future. Now, Ambika, certain individuals have no capacity or lesser capacity to see the light, and some have greater capacity to see the light, but each one of us is unique. And we wouldn't want all of us to be the same. All we want is the privilege to be able to strive to empower those who have diminished capacity in order to have greater capacity. We want to inspire them all so that they can grow and have this sense of understanding and have a greater sense of, uh, of capability. They will increase their capabilities because of the empowerment that you give them. So we're not trying to understand why it happened. We know why it happened. We're trying to understand what do we do now with the circumstances that we have. And we know what to do. We want to give them love and encouragement and inspiration and empowerment and education and criteria and certain attitudes so that they can discriminate what is the best path forward for me to create a sense of the greatest independence that we can possibly inspire within all with whom we associate. So that's my feelings about dealing with individuals who have a diminished capacity to see the light. Show them your light and show them what did you do to get there and teach them how to sit and how to breathe and how to focus their attention until they become one with their objective, whatever that may be, however they choose to define dharma. That's their choice. Our choice is only to demonstrate to them how we chose to define our own dharma, our own ideals of perfection, and empower them to make the same choices for themselves. Give them all the tools that you can give them, and then try and go out and get some more. Get more tools with which to share with them. You want to share all the tools with your kids. And let them make them their own decisions themselves. You can't fulfill their karma for them. All you can do is show them the beauty of your karma because you are dedicating your life to empowering them and inspiring them and educating them and giving them all the tools to make the decision that they want to make themselves. That's liberation. We can't make the decisions for the kids. They're going to choose their own values according to their own necessities, their own experiences. 
All we can do is show them examples of people, of ourselves, who've made the decision to, to come up the mountain and come to the Devi Mandir and visit my guru. <laughs> so that we can change our lives. Now, I'm not worried about changing their lives. They have to choose that. That's something they'll choose themselves. Stop that. <laughs> He just chose. <laughs> Class is over. <laughs> One more question. A question from Shivani. Well, okay. <laughs> Can you talk about the tapasya of speech, particularly in worldly situations? Yes, I can. There's a certain speech that you use every day with your friends. And there's a certain speech which is appropriate in negotiation for what you want to do. And that speech will have a specified vocabulary. For example, if you're editing medical texts, you can't write like you're texting your buddy next door. You've got to spell out words correctly and use proper grammar and use punctuation and use capitalization and use sentence structure and use a vocabulary which is specific to the project that you're doing. So in every circumstance, in every relationship, there's a special vocabulary and a special diction and a special mode of communication that we want to be aware of. What is appropriate in these circumstances? It blows my mind when I get these emails that look like they were texted by a five-year-old uh, with all kinds of question marks and asterisks and, and all kinds of, it, it, they don't spell out words, they abbreviate everything, no punctuation, no capitalization. I'm supposed to figure out what they're trying to say. I'm sorry, I'm not a millennium, <laughs> a, a, a child of the millennium. I'm a child of all time. So speak to me with proper English so I can understand your proper intent. I don't want to have to guess your meaning. I want you to specifically enunciate your meaning. So there's a, there's a lot that goes into speech. And I, by speech, I also mean writing and the things that you're reporting, and to whom you are reporting it to, and with whom you are speaking, you will use the diction that's appropriate for that relationship. You don't want to talk to me like another five-year-old buddy, maybe a six-year-old, <laughs> maybe a ten-year-old. But in the same way, we want to address our guru with the highest sense of respect. I, I, it's easier in Hindi or Bengali. We have formal language and we have familiar language and we have gutter language. Um, sorry to tell you about my expertise. Uh, there's, uh, it was really funny. I learned Hindi from sadhus on the street. Uh, and so when I went to the city, I started talking the Hindi that I learned. People were just blushing. <laughs> I couldn't understand. I thought they'd be so impressed. Here's this, here's this Ferengi sadhu, this Gorolok. He's a, a white guy, comes into the city, and he's, and he's using this vocabulary from ox cart drivers and sadhus and, uh, who sleep on the road and underneath the temple portico. And they, you know, the language wasn't quite appropriate. <laughs> 
Leave it to be said, I, I had a greater education coming to me. In the same way, I'm going to try to inspire you all to learn the various kinds of vocabulary and diction that are appropriate for the kinds of communication which you perform. There are certain languages, every profession has its own specialized set of vocabulary. I mean, if I talk to these geeks, I don't know half the acronyms they're talking about. They've got college degrees, though. Yeah, and, and I can hardly understand all the, the, the things that they're talking about. They talk to me from the inside of a computer. And I can hardly figure out the outside. In the same way, when I talk to other lawyers, boy, oh boy, do we have some things to talk about. And when I talk to accountants or I talk to doctors, when we were researching Srima's medical issues, boy, I had to learn a whole new language. It's the same in spirituality. I had a dear friend who used to say, I make love in French, I sing in Italian, I give orders in German, and do business in English. <laughs> and I think Sanskrit is a language of in, in, inner experience. They've got more words for states of consciousness, just like the Eskimos have more words for snow than we can understand what's ice and what's cold. In the same way in Sanskrit, the sadhus had more terms for subtle states and variations in the field of consciousness. And in order to be able to conceive what they're talking about, we're going to have to learn the language. So we have words to talk about the different levels of consciousness. So language is going to be a very important tool for us. And we have to become multilingual. We have to become empowered to find so many different ways of conversing about the things we need. I, I went to a, one village where they only speak Sanskrit. And I couldn't go to the bazaar. I didn't know the names of any of the things that I would buy in Sanskrit. I always spoke in Hindi or Bengali. I never spoke Sanskrit as something I would do when I went to the, to, as, a, as a language of commerce. <laughs> so I was pretty stuck there. Uh, but I couldn't even explain to people what it was that I was looking for. But when I started thinking in Sanskrit, my thoughts became very subtle because I had no words. I had no vocabulary. And so I can only think about things that were inside. Well, language is going to be a very, very important tool for us to go inside and learn more and more about the subtleties of the changes in the states of consciousness. Uh, that's sort of what we're wanting to do. So the more we study Sanskrit, and I heard that Nanda is going to teach Sanskrit every Saturday afternoon. <coughs> I think that will be a wonderful opportunity for you to increase your vocabulary and to increase your understanding and read things and understand what you're saying. Oh, language will be a very important tool to making your thoughts more subtle. I hope that we've completed our backlog of questions and that Swami didn't go on too long as he usually does. 
ओम सम सरस्वती नमः नमस्ते